Pauline. This year, we're expanding the Fall Line's coverage to include several long-form interviews with people who work to solve crime, whether it's through genealogy, law enforcement, forensic anthropology, or even statistics. For our first interview, Brooke speaks with Jerry Williams. Jerry became a special agent with the FBI in 1982 and retired after 26 years of service. In her book, FBI Myths and Conceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, Jerry helps readers compare mass media portrayals of the FBI with the reality. Be sure you check out her podcast, FBI Retired Case File Review. Her podcast episodes are fascinating, and there's something for everyone. Brooke's top picks will be linked in the show notes and will be discussed in this interview. The first is an interview with Wayne Davis about his experience as one of the first ever Black special agents in the FBI. The second is a two-episode series with retired special agent Jeff Reinick, where he discusses his experience chasing child predators and the PTSD he experienced as a result. You can learn more about Jerry's projects at her website, jerrywilliams.com. You can learn more about Jerry's projects at her website, jerrywilliams.com. If it's cool with you, we could just go right in to the first questions. I would love for you to tell our listeners how your time as a youth probation officer and the experience of your roommate going into law enforcement led you to the FBI. My first professional job after graduating from college was as a well, they called it a juvenile probation officer, but my actual title was aftercare counselor. And, you know, I was a psychology major. It was an opportunity to use my education and also work a, a little bit in quasi law enforcement. And I say quasi law enforcement because the kids that I had on my caseload were all over the, the state of Virginia. And so I traveled to see them in the different reform schools. And then I helped transition back into the community. And so, you know, I already had a kind of foot into the correctional system. And then one day I saw this newsletter and it said that the FBI was looking for women and minorities. And, you know, I thought, what the, you know, what the heck, <laughs> you know, I'm a, 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 a black female and I'm already working for the Department of Correction for the state of Virginia. And I thought, well, let me give it a chance. Let me just look into this. And it also, I, I was also very comfortable with the possibility because my roommate in college, who is my best friend to this date, was just talking to her this morning for about two hours because <laughs> we do that. She was a police officer in Baltimore. And so the possibility of working in federal law enforcement was not that far-fetched. I know for, for some people that the FBI is interested in, they may be teachers or nurses or something like that, where it really seems like there is no connection. I did have a little bit of a connection. And so I thought, you know what, let's just give this a try. And six months later, <laughs> I was walking into the FBI Academy thinking to myself, what have I done? <laughs> yes, you you also talked about having been a member of a military family. You had traveled around quite a bit. You had a lot of like world experience. Do you feel like part of you knowing that you might be a good candidate for that was the confidence maybe that your parents had and had sort of given you as being a worldly sort of person? Yeah, being an Air Force brat definitely gave me the confidence to apply for this job because my entire life at that point had been traveling all over the world. You know, my father was stationed in, in Germany and in England and France and Morocco. And then we had been in various states like Maine and Massachusetts and Washington State. So I had been around and I was always used to you know, being the new person, walking in and trying to communicate with people and get to know people. So I wasn't very fearful of trying new things. And so when it came to joining the FBI, I was also 
you know, used to the military regiment, you know, when you're on base and it's the end of the day and they start playing taps, even the little children stand still, you know, with their hand over their heart, Mm -hmm. you know, listening to taps. So uh, yeah, I was used to that. So even though as a black female, it was foreign, there were so many parts of the FBI and being an agent that I was already, that I knew that I was going to be comfortable with. Yes. Can you talk about any of the people that you worked with over the years who may not have had that experience and may have grown up in one place or been from a different industry and came to the FBI in that way that added a lot of value? And I'm asking because we have quite a few young listeners who are not necessarily in law enforcement, but because of their interest in true crime, they may not have thought of this as a career path. I think a lot of people, when they hear about FBI agents, they automatically assume, because it is federal law enforcement, that most of the people who are in the FBI have a law enforcement background. They were a police officer, or they were in the military before they joined. And that is not true. And I think that's one of the things that I like to stress to people that, you know, we have people that were in business, that were school teachers, that were nurses, that were doctors, that were scientists or linguists, uh, car salesmen. I mean, we're (laughs) looking for people who can come uh, come into the FBI and be able to communicate well, both in person, verbally, and on paper, because we have lots of reports that we write, mm. and get the job done. And if there are law enforcement skills, such as shooting a firearm or to write an affidavit for a search or an arrest warrant, the FBI can teach somebody that. You know, what we're looking for are people who have leadership skills and you know, the FBI is an organization, you know, of of leaders. Yeah, some of the things that I read was sort of, um, it was talking about how agents tend to be their own self-starters, sort of. They're, in some ways, their own bosses in terms of you don't have micromanaging. Once you get to a certain point, you're the person who sort of decides how you're going to go about investigating. And of course, you know, they'll keep up with you. But um, so any of our listeners that like that idea might be able to sort of look into that career wise. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. I always say that running a case is like running your own business. And you decide what kind of resources you need, what time your business is open, what kind of manpower you need. You make those decisions. You know, you have your supervisor that's going to help you uh, facilitate those things that you need. But you're making those decisions on a day-to-day basis on your cases. Now, if you're working on a task force or you're working on like an organized crime squad, there are a lot more. There's a lot more collaboration between squad members. But many, many, many squads and many violations, the agents are assigned a case and they're in charge of that case, along with the other 15 to 25 or 30 cases that they have on their caseload. And they have to decide what time and commitment they want to put on each of those cases to get those cases uh, uh, successfully resolved. Yes. So. Another aspect that I would love to talk about because of our listening population is the importance of racial diversity in the FBI. Um, You have an excellent episode that I will talk about more sort of at the end of this episode to give people um, an idea of a specific one to go to. If you could just talk just a little bit about why you feel like that's so important to the FBI as an organization. Well, I feel it's important to the FBI as an organization to have diversity in their ranks. But I also feel it's important for all law enforcement agencies, Mm -hmm. especially for those that are operating in places where there is a diverse community. I mean, you have to reflect the community for which you serve. It's important. And when you don't, that's when you have all of the uh, you know, racial unrest and 
complaints from the community because they don't know for sure that you see them and that you recognize their needs and you know what's important to them and so having a diverse working you know employment population is so very important and the FBI has somewhat struggled with this uh, for I don't know a variety of, of reasons so they're always recruiting and trying to reach out to women, which make up about 20% of uh, the special agent ranks, and minorities, which make up about 17, 18% of the FBI ranks. But in reality, uh, just as much as when I came into the FBI, about 70% of FBI agents are still white males. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to be able to serve the community, the FBI recognizes that and, and, and is trying to get more women and minorities to, to, join, uh, to join the FBI. That is one of the things that we love thinking and talking about um, with our listeners, which is that on one hand, you can sometimes hear like that an organization is an equal opportunity employer and that they're definitely following the law. And on the other hand, when people might get into the workplace, sometimes they might have personal interactions that are that seem antithetical to that um, sort of mission statement of the organization. And this may have been the case back in the day, you know, when you first entered the FBI can you, you sort of said in your book that you had a few eye-raising, eyebrow-raising experiences. I'm sorry, you said that in the episode with Wayne Davis. Are there any of those that you'd be willing to share as a young person when you first got there? Yeah, I would be willing to, to, to share those with the caveat of that's what happened early in my career. And, you know, by the, the time four or five years later, I didn't have any more of those incidents. You know, there could be people that are experiencing some type of uncomfortable or discrimination in the workplace today. I, I don't know. But for me personally, I did not. So when I talk about, um, you know, some of those initial uncomfortable moments, you know, it is, again, with the caveat that uh, later in my career, I only experienced what I thought was, you know, the most wonderful work environment that one one could hope for. But, yeah, when I first joined the FBI, I was, uh, you know, there were still people. It was 10 years after women had become special agents. The, the first women who joined the FBI was in 1972. Prior to that, they couldn't. It That's just amazing. Wasn't. Yeah, it was. 1972. Can you imagine? No. <laughs> <laughs> but so 10 years later, when I came into the FBI in 1982, not a lot had changed, uh, only because there, there still wasn't a lot of women. I would think that there were probably, oh, I don't know. I, I, I don't even want to guess, but I, I would imagine maybe the number of women was 10 percent. Um, I, I know the number of, of black women was less than 0.5 percent. Wow. And so there were many offices that had not experienced working with female agents and definitely not, you know, working with minority agents and minority female agents. And, and uh, you know, my first office was Sacramento. And, you know, I still love the people there and, and still have friends who I, I met through that office, but there were people there that just were not used to minority agents and, and minority females. And, you know, I came to the office at a time where I was the only, only minority agent, only minority employee in the office. Whoa. There was a, a, a black male who worked as a clerk on the night shift, but he wasn't there during the day. So the example that I, I give to people when I talk about being uncomfortable was there was a, a columnist named Harvey. Oh no, just went out of my mind. I just had a, a senior moment. Mm -hmm. um, oh, 
and everybody's going to be shouting who's listening to this, <laughs> you know, but I can't think of his last name right now, but he was a, a very famous columnist and he wrote a column about how the FBI was lowering their standards in order to have more oh. minorities in the FBI. And I saw that column mm. was tacked up in <gasps> the break room in the Sacramento office. And of course I took offense. Oh my and goodness. so I took down the article and I went into my supervisor's office and I said, you know, I find this offensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his first answer was, well, I didn't put it up, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, oh, okay. Um, but, you know, I, I expressed my concern and I went back to my desk and the next day there was an article, the same article was on my desk. <gasps> wait a minute, and on the desk of everybody <gasps> in, on my squad. So now I was really angry. And oh. I'm a brand new agent. I'm 20. By that time, I came in when I was 25. So I was 26 oh years old. Oh my gosh, 26. But I wasn't going to put up with that. And so I walked into the, uh, I, I, I called to see if I could meet with the special agent in charge. He wasn't available, but his second in charge, was the which is called the assistant special agent in charge or the ASAC was and so you know I I told my supervisor that I was going to go talk to the ASAC about this and when I walked into his office first there's a little anteroom where his secretary sat she had a column on her desk and before I went to meet with him she said to me why are you so upset you're not one of the unqualified ones they're talking about no. So now I'm fired up. And when oh. I go into the ASAC's office, right there on his desk was another column. And I found out that everybody in the office, they printed out columns for everybody in the office and they put it on their desk. Oh, my goodness. I'm sitting here trying to figure out what I would do. Yeah. Well, as a 26-year-old first office agent, you know, there's not much that you could do. You know, I, I, I expressed my concerns. I was told that, you know, I was oversensitive and that I had a chip on my shoulder. And, you know, I, I you know, I can't even, when I, when I think about that moment, you know, being told that and understanding that I came from an Air Force brat background where I was so used to being the only minority, mm. you know, when you're living in Germany and England and Massachusetts and Maine, you know, and, and, and the air force, you know, was is not as diverse as say, you know, the army. Mm -hmm. I, I was the last person that I felt would be accused of being, you know, oversensitive, you know, about being, you know, a minority. And, you know, even though I had many friends there, that always was in the background, you know, who did this, you know, who was it? And, um, and, and there were people who were a lot more verbal, you know, just little things like, and I, I know it sounds so petty now, but you know, if there's a chocolate cake and a vanilla cake. Oh, I know what, when Jerry's going to want, you know, Oh just, my just God. Like wow. So, and so I, what I want to stress, and when I tell this story, I always have to stress that it was not the people. It was not the institution. It was a person, two people, three people. Uh, but what was unacceptable was the lack of response to my complaints. Yes. Did any of your peers mention the article being on their desk to you? Yes. And, the, and they were upset about it. And, and um, you know, some had appropriate responses and others, you know, also said, you know, you're not one of the unqualified ones that they're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and not accepting the point is the FBI is not lowering any standards mm -hmm. to accept minorities. You know, what are you talking about? Um, but <sighs> I'm thinking also as a young person, you know, in your first sort of professional I mean, this was your second professional job, but I really personally would have had trouble. Like, I think my voice would have been shaking. I might have even started crying. I would have been so mad about it. Like, <laughs> I'm amazed that you were able to keep any composure. 
Well, I probably cried when I got home, but like in, in many jobs, there's no crying in law enforcement. So I, I certainly didn't do it in the, uh, in the ASAC's office, but yeah. So, you know, that was, that, that was, you know, a, a hard time for me. Um, and I always like to, to stress that I probably had some self-doubts about myself at the time, too. The average agent that's hired to come into the FBI is about 29 or 30 years old. And so I came in very young. You know, I think I had a, a solid education and solid work experience. Uh, you know, I knew how to handle myself. I was used to traveling. I had actually a year after college, you know, spent, uh, I mean, not a year, but directly after college, it's been a year living in Switzerland and traveling by myself all over, you know, all over Europe. So, you know, I was pretty confident, but, you know, when you come into the FBI and you see these people, these agents who are working such unbelievable cases and, you know, their backgrounds that they came from and you start to compare and, you know, so I probably had a little bit of, of, uh, imposter syndrome of my own going mm, on. Yeah. And then this is happening. And, uh, you know, when I got to Philly, there were some other things that happened that, you know, my first four years were really, really shaky. And, if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, I was making a, a, a decent salary, uh, for my standards anyway, you know, much better twice as, as much initially and more, you know, what I was making when I was a, a probation officer. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, I stayed, um, and I'm so glad I did. I am hmm. so glad I did because as I became even more confident, as I began um, I guess earning my street creds as an agent and developing cases and making arrests and doing searches, not only would I not put up with that immediately could stop it, you know, when somebody even, you know, considered saying anything inappropriate to me, but no one would, no one was even thinking of doing it, you know, and by the end of my career, I can definitely say that I was a mentor to everyone on my squad. And I had, you know, I had guys coming to me and asking me how to do things and for my assistance and my thoughts. And, and so that's what I have to stress, you know, um, not, you know, not the story itself. No one needs to feel sorry for me. It happened. I grew from it. I pro it probably made me a better agent, a better person that I experienced it. Does that mean I wanted it to happen? No, I, I probably could have skipped that. But these are the things that we, especially as professional women, sometimes have to endure. Yeah, what you describe is so complicated. Like all of the great issues of our time that I like thinking about, um, it's complicated. And one of the things that you said before is so interesting to me. You said, sort of as an aside, you know, there, there's no crying in the FBI. Your episode with Jeff Reinick talked about, essentially, if you want to boil it down, emotions um, and sort of the feeling of what you experience in that high-pressure workplace and how does that fit in. And that is such an interesting issue to me because it is very complicated. Um, can you describe your experience of doing that episode with Jeff? When I interviewed Jeff Reinick, I had only read the part of his book that talked about the case that we were reviewing. And I actually said that at the very beginning of the episode. You know, I've only had a chance to to read about this particular case or these two cases that we're going to talk about. So later on in the interview, when we go into the emotional state that he got into, you know, suicidal state that he got into from working all of these heinous, evil, uh, predator, child murder cases, I was taken back because I hadn't read that part of the book. I was unprepared. And I guess you could say that my psychology education 
addiction background uh, and the therapies that I had learned, you know, way back then when I was uh, an aftercare counselor, you know, some of that, those words, you know, those encouraging words kind of came through, you know, and I was able to adapt, but it was the most challenging interview that I did because I wanted to make sure that I respected what he was saying, that I said the right words, that I pulled the right information out of him, you know, from the the very deep and personal things that he was sharing with me, sharing, sharing with the listeners. And, um, uh, I, I was just amazed. We actually, the interview, of course I edited it into two separate you know, hour and a half episodes, but we talked for nearly four hours. I think, I think we talked over four hours, um, at one shot. And I, at one point, yeah, at one point of the episode, you know, he's telling me about how he did not go to a counselor, that he didn't tell his supervisors, you know, how bad he was emotionally, how suicidal he was, but he did share it with his wife. And I say to him, well, isn't that, you know, a lot of responsibility for your wife. Don't you feel that, you know, just sharing it with her, you know, you know, how did that work out? And he said to me, well, why don't you ask her? Yeah, she She's was sitting right there. Yes. <laughs> that was awesome. Yes, it was. And so now I'm interviewing his wife and, oh, I always like to say there are many interviews or it's another one that I did with an agent about the poly class kidnapping where the agent also breaks down and cries during the interview. So that was one of the very first ones where I was understanding what I was doing, you know, as a podcaster interviewing retired agents. I wasn't just sharing stories about FBI cases, but I was sharing stories about FBI agents and their lives and the emotional toll that working, you know, some of these cases can take on themselves and their families. And, you know, it became a mission. I mean, it's a a mission to really show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does. And Jeff just poured his heart out, not just in the podcast episode. Of course, he has a book in the name of the children, is the name of the book. And he really just shares for every single case that he worked that had to do with a child murder or a child abduction. You know, he shares not only what was happening at work, but how he was experiencing it at home. And again, I've talked to many agents who were transparent and honest in, you know, in telling their cases to talk about that. The nightmares at night are, you know, how they ignored their families and almost, you know, ended up with a divorce or were divorced because of their dedication to uh, their FBI investigations. You know, I, luckily my marriage survived, but I can tell you that there were many times that, you know, when I look back, it's like, what, you know, just working, you know, late hours and coming home and, you know, going to sleep and taking a shower and going back work to work the next day. And, you know, just, you know, leaving a lot of the responsibility to my husband. Um, And this is usually during a trial, but, you know, I wanted to get to work. I wanted to work on the case. I wanted to be with my coworkers and, uh, you know, it's almost, um, it's almost addictive sometimes when, you know, you, you want to be successful at what you do. Yes. You, you talked at one point about, you know, you had worked major economic fraud investigations, but you talked about having a real interest in investigating corrupt corporate and public officials. Can you talk about how it really hooks you in an interest and, and how you get wrapped up in that. And I would love to know about your personal interest in sort of the corruption angle. Well, during my time working on an economic crime squad, I did get to do corruption with corporate officials. That's exactly what I did. So it was fraud and corruption in the business area. It was white collar crime. Mm -hmm. The distinction between 
what I did in a public corruption squad is that the targets are the subjects in a public corruption squad are all officials, are all public officials, whether they be, you know, a councilman or mayor or senator or just an employee of a city or municipality or, you know, a congressman or a senator, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always wanted to work that because I'm ambitious. (laughs) Everybody in the FBI is ambitious. And the truth is that public corruption is the number one criminal program in the FBI. And so people working on that squad, you know, they're rock stars. And uh, if, you know, on, on the white collar crime side. And so why wouldn't somebody who is, you know, ambitious want to uh, go to the next level and, and work on that squad? And I can tell you when I... <laughs> I I hate to, you know, one of the things that you do in the FBI is you don't air dirty laundry and you don't embarrass the bureau. So, but uh, here I am telling you another uh, negative story. uh, (laughs) So I wanted to go to the public corruption squad and, you know, I went to uh, my supervisor and, you know, expressed myself that I wanted to go to an to the other squad. And he said, well, just go over there and talk to the supervisor. And the supervisor, you know, was known not to like women agents, Hmm. you know, it was just known, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, again, this is, this is early in the career. This is probably in the, in the early nineties. And, you know, I called and asked if I could meet with him and I went over and, and expressed my, my desire to work, you know, on his squad. And, you know, by the time I left out of there, I knew I had a snowball's chance in hell that I was getting on that squad because, I mean, he'd said something that he, you know, it's a, it was a very serious squad and they only needed the most experienced people and blah, blah, blah. And like mm. the next, the next week, some new agent straight out of Quantico got on the squad. So it was like, oh, uh, wow. forget it. That's not happening. Mm. Um, uh, but <laughs> You know, those are just kind of things that you kind of, kind of, it's, um, you kind of dealt with, you know, it's a, it's a very competitive atmosphere. It's a very, and I know this is going to sound like a, a, a strange word to say right after I say competitive, but it's a very family atmosphere, but you know, in your families, there are people that, uh, you know, are looking out for you and there are people that are not necessarily looking out for you. So I think I think you can have both. And uh, after a while, I just enjoyed and absolutely flourished in what I was doing. And now I just write about it. So you know, I'm writing crime novels, and my crime novels have to do a lot with uh, public corruption. And and so I, I'm still getting to play it out. And the way uh, my novels work out, my alter ego is uh, always successful. Yes, <laughs> I've always. I, I have three words. I, I believe in someone taught me this to always have three words that you feel about yourself and that you live uh, your life through. And my three words are that I want to be productive. I want to be encouraging and I want to be fun. Wow. I love yeah. that three word idea. Yes. Wow. And so That's great. Everything I do. Productive. You know, am I being productive? Am I being encouraging, encouraging. Mm-hmm. and am I being fun? Hmm. That's incredible. Or having, or having fun. <laughs> yes, I hope so. <laughs> yes. So I want to switch topics now just for fun. This should be fun, hopefully. I want to know what are the most surprising things that you learned over the course of your career about con men Ooh. or con women? <laughs> yes. Well, I did have, I only had one case with a female subject, but, uh, but she was just as narcissistic as, <laughs> as the guys. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the one thing it was that they always wanted to, or they always thought that they were the smartest person in the room. And they spent a lot of time wanting to convince you that that was true. And so if you were a very confident person and, you know, confident, you know, if there, if there were four words that I could have to describe myself, <laughs> I would add, I would add confidence to that, uh, mm-hmm. th- those three words. I 
had one guy that just, you know, was trying to flatter me, tell me I look like uh, Gladys Knight, which I do not look anything like Gladys Knight. But, <laughs> oh, God. You know, I, but um, I, I would think that's the, the biggest thing. And, and, I, and that's why I enjoyed it so much, because when you're working white collar crime, when you're working a fraud or a scam and, you know, with a con man, advance fee schemes and Ponzi schemes, those are the things that I did. A lot of times it is not as cut and dry as say, if you're working a drug case or a bank robbery case where you know the crime has been committed and now you're just trying to prove that person did it. In a white collar crime, it's a little bit more complicated because sometimes you have something and you have to be able to figure out whether or not what you have is a crime. Interesting. Or is it just a business disagreement? Hmm. And so working those cases, not only do you have to figure out whether or not you have a crime or not, and then a lot of times you have to convince not just the subject who you're going after, who thinks, hey, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, but sometimes you even have to convince your victims yeah, this was a crime. You, you've you been scammed, you know. Yes, this sounds extremely relevant politically at this yes. time. Yes, mm-hmm. you know. You know, looking at the, the criminal elements, you know, what is and what is not a crime. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important that we do that type of work because, you know, there there is a line. And when somebody crosses over that line, you know, they, you have to act or else that line gets pushed back further and further and further. And so there has to be, um, you know, justice, you know. Stress, sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine, and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us, is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps, so for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and, well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day, too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. NuCalm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with NuCalm. NuCalm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The new Calm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnewcom.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NewCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fallnucalm.com. Fallnucalm.com. It's interesting that you talked about the line being pushed back because that's another sort of making me think more about structure and rigidity and how important is that in an organization that is tasked with, you know, upholding the law. But then where does that leave room for growth in different areas? You know, talking about things like the emotions of the agents and is there room for crying? I mean, it all seems to boil down to this idea of like, you know, movement and growth versus the importance of rigidity and rules. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think with the FBI, uh, there are set guidelines. There are, are things that 
you can do and that you can't do. And um, it's very critical parent <laughs> type, you know, situations where if you do something wrong, you know, someone's going to tell you, someone's going to call you on the carpet. You, you are expected to be a self-starter. You're expected to get the job done uh, to the point where it's only every 90 days that a supervisor even checks your work. Uh, so you wow. could goof off for 90 days if you wanted to. <laughs> but when that, you know, that on that day 80, <laughs> day 89, you might be at work, you know, all night long <laughs> trying to get stuff in your files to, to um, you know, document that you've been doing some work. So, you know, you, you have to be uh, a very independent, uh, you know, person of integrity in order to do this job. Uh, but there is room for initiative. And there's room for being inventive. Um, you know, that's mm. part of being uh, of leaders, of being a leader itself is creating different ways to get around obstacles and barriers. And so there's there's room for that, too, you know, as, as long as uh, it's legal, you know, but there's, you know, trying to think of new ways when when you can't get evidence, uh, you know, that you want or you're trying to be able to talk to somebody who doesn't want to talk to you, you know, using innovative methods and innovation was the word I wanted to use and not mm -hmm. in inventive, but innovation, you know, how can we get this job done? And so again, that's part of, of the, the leadership aspect of being an FBI agent is to be innovative and creative. And, you know, that kind of brings me back to <laughs> being a podcaster and yes. being an author author and, and really having built up some of that need, you know, later in my career that, you know, I wanted to be able to express myself in those creative ways. Yes. And it, it like mirrors. So not only are we talking about within the FBI, but within the person, um, the sort of pushback between some importance of structure, rigidity, you've got things due, you need to be organized. And on the other side, you know, the the innovation, the creativity, and those things butting up against each other, I think, personally, I think are what create the most dynamic people. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And I know one of the people are the group of people in the FBI where you see that a lot, of course, is an, an undercover agent. And so I've had yes. an opportunity yeah, to speak to a number of undercover agents because they definitely have to be quick on their feet and be innovative. But there are rules. And I think and we haven't really talked about this a lot. But one of the things that I really enjoy getting out to the public is to debunk some of those cliches and misconceptions. And I think there's lots of of misconceptions and myths about undercover agents being able, you know, these wild people that are just doing things and, and no, they, they have strict guidelines too. You know, there's a, an attorney, a prosecutor, you know, at the office who are asking that they accomplish and that they be able to document certain elements of the crime, you know, so that they can use that for arrest warrants and the, uh, and the search warrants. And, and so, you know, they've got rules and things that they've got to follow too. And, but at the same time, you know, using their, their mind and their quick uh, senses to develop a strategy for, for accomplishing all of that. I find that so fascinating from a mental health perspective. But you're right. You know, the effects that, you know, those type of relationships with bad guys, pretending that they're, you know, your pals and your friends, you know, can feel real at times. And I've done interviews with undercover agents who, who, who talk about that all the time. Yes. That, that feeling of, um, is this a legitimate betrayal? Uh, yes. Do, yes. Yeah. It's so interesting. And that, that also brings me back to your interview with Jeff, when he talked about the subject he was interviewing saying, I will confess to these crimes I've done, but I want you to allow me access to child abuse materials. Oh, yes. Um, and he had to ask the office and they really had to consider what are we going to do here? Um, and the answer, the listeners now, I'll tell you, 
if you're interested, you should absolutely listen to those episodes. They're fascinating. Uh, But what came down was, no, you know, even if we're going to be able to get a confession, we can't break the law in order to do that. Yeah. And doesn't that make you feel good about the FBI? Doesn't that make you feel uh, confident in the integrity of our justice system that they're not willing to break the law in order to bring somebody down. Yes. Um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, when, when I do these interviews, and I'm sure you're you're the same way, sometimes you don't know what people are going to say, and oh, you're, yeah. just at, you're just as enthralled in the <laughs> conversation as your listeners are. And because many times I don't know the inside details of a case, I'm as, you know, like I have my eyes open and my mouth wide, like what's going to happen, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the suspense of it all. And and that was one of those times where I was like, yeah, that makes sense. You yes. know, cause I was thinking he was going to say, yeah. So we showed him some child pornography and then he confessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after he said, no, they didn't. I was like, yeah, that, yeah. that was the right answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he got the confession anyway. <laughs> yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. And I, I think one of the other things that he talks about there that is really eye-opening is that when you're doing the interview, and not just with a pedophile, you know, or a child, you know, predator, but with every single interview that an agent does, is to develop that rapport with to make your subject comfortable in talking with you, and in almost every situation that is done by showing them respect and by letting them know they're in a place where, Hey, I'm not going to judge you. You know, if you did this, then let's just talk about it. You know, I'm here to, uh, accept your, your information, your confession, but I'm not going to judge you. And, you know, on TV shows and movies and in books, you know, they show that very adversarial relationship between an interviewer and the subject, you know, it's interrogation and they're pointing and they're threatening. And that is not the way it works in real life. It's like, can you explain to me, you know, how this could have happened? You know, I I know you're saying that you didn't do this murder, but there, was there anything that happened that was said that was done that could have caused you to break and do this? And of course, somebody on the outside would be like, what, you're, you're sympathizing with this terrible, evil person, you know, but it's something that you have to do as an investigator in order to build that rapport, to get them to talk to you. You don't have to like them. You know, you you don't have to agree with uh, what they've done, but you do have to give them a place of empathy and respect in order for you to accomplish your goal. And that is for them to tell you what happened. Yes. And that is so interesting to me as a therapist, because it's very parallel to the rapport building um, that we may do with people who come to us. And I'm thinking of other Um, careers in which people use those skills. I actually was even thinking about, um, uh, I grew up Catholic, so there's a thing called confession where you go and you, and you sit with the priest and you're supposed to tell them the things you've done wrong. And, you know, there's an element of trying to be disarming to a degree to help the person that you're sitting with feel comfortable enough to reveal their vulnerabilities. Yeah. It's, it's really the same methods, um, that are used, you know, in, in law enforcement, especially federal law enforcement. I can only speak for federal law enforcement, but definitely, you know, being open to hearing what that person has to say is the most important step in getting a confession, getting someone to, to share with you what it is that they've done. Yes. And it's a real skill and you have to like practice it and it develops over time. So I'm sure the seasoned agents are, um, 
you know, really valued for their ability to sit with people and get a confession. Oh, definitely. I mean, they, I think they learn. Uh, I know there's a couple of interviews where I've talked to a senior agent and he's telling the story about, you know, practicing this and talking to a bad guy and having a, a new agent with him saying like, you know, can I talk to you outside for a minute? And it's like, what are you doing? This, <laughs> you're being so nice to this guy. I, you want me to go get him a soda? Are you crazy? I can't stand him. And just having to explain to him, just go get him a soda. Mm-hmm. Ask him what kind he wants, you know, make sure it's cold. <laughs> and when you come back in, see the difference in his behavior. Mm-hmm. See how he can, you're, you're getting him to relax. See how you're getting him to open up. Uh, you know, the more you're closed, the more they're closed. And so it's definitely, I hate to use the word game because this is more serious than that, but it definitely is a dance. And, and another, you know, I have complicated feelings about it because in truth, if we boil it down, it is manipulation. It's manipulative and it can at times be used for a goal that in the end will be beneficial. Um, And I can say that in, in therapy, I can say that as getting a confession for the FBI, Um, you know, it's complicated. So much of this is complicated, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, yes. So speaking of, speaking of, this is a great time for us to talk about um, our first ever season, the case of the Millbrook Twins. Mm. I was was able to to, to listen to that. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Yes. So, so I'm, I'm not sure if you had this reaction, but as listeners and as a person myself, you know, being involved in speaking with the family, the first thoughts that we have when we see such an injustice take place is like, okay, who's in charge here? Who Who is a boss on top of these people who are acting like the boss? These people must have a boss. And people's brains automatically, I think, tend to go to the FBI. Let's get the FBI. They can do something. They can bring the hammer down on this local department that didn't do enough. Um, You know, your book is amazing for dispelling myths and rumors. And, and I would love for you to sort of explain why that is not an option in the case of the twins. Yes. I, I think one of the biggest myths that people have about the FBI, they look at them as, you know, the top law enforcement agency, which we are, but it's not like an organizational chart. You know, the FBI, yeah, the FBI has no hierarchical authority over local and state agencies. They're not subordinate to us. You know, unlike in the movies, the FBI can't just walk into a crime scene and take over. It just doesn't happen that way. And in cases like the twins cases where there's missing and murdered people, most of the time, there's no federal jurisdiction whatsoever. We have no business, no authority to be involved in that investigation at all. Because in the most part, the FBI does not investigate local murders, period. Now, sometimes you'll see cases you might be reading in the newspaper and it says the FBI is involved. The FBI is involved on an invitation basis. So there are some times where We don't have jurisdiction, but the local law enforcement agency uh, asks us to step in because of our uh, substantial resources that we might be able to bring to a case. Matter of fact, I just did an an episode about the boy in the bunker where a little boy Mm -hmm. was kidnapped Mm -hmm. by a... um, I was going to say disgruntled, but let's just call him, well, you're a mental health person, so maybe I shouldn't use the word uh, cra- <laughs> crazy man. I, 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 I apologize for my, ins- my insensitivity, but it. so he's, but he's kidnapped and, and held uh, in a bunker because this person has a manifesto that he wants to tell the world and, and he's kidnapped this boy until, you know, the media will come to listen. That was not an FBI case. 
There was no FBI jurisdiction whatsoever. It's a local kidnapping, and it was a local murder too, because the the guy, the bad guy, shot the school bus driver in order to get this kid off the bus. Mm -hmm. But in that particular case, because it was an underground bunker, because this boy was kidnapped, because of the circumstances, the local police department reached out to the FBI and says, we, we, we need your assistance. And the FBI came in with all of their resources. I, I think at the end, there were you know a couple of hundred agents there. They had the, the bomb techs and the uh, hostage rescue team and their evidence collection team and our, 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 yes, our, our, you know, a critical incident response group. They were all there, you know, trying to figure out over almost a week period of time how to get this boy safely out of that bunker. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. But that was not an FBI case. And, you know, if, if the bad guy had lived and, and was going to be prosecuted, it would have been prosecuted at the state level. Mm -hmm. Now the FBI may have come in to testify as fact witnesses, but it would have been a state matter and a state prosecution. It was a state case and we had no jurisdiction whatsoever other than the local agency asking us for assistance. And so if somebody has a local case and they think the FBI needs to step in, we can't step in uh, to investigate. We can, you know, if the Local law enforcement asked us to help, even if it's just using the FBI lab, which we do, you know, provide free of charge to any state or local federal, uh, state or local law enforcement agency. We can do that, but we cannot step in and and redo an investigation because, uh, you know, somebody doesn't like the way the the case turned out. Uh, That's not the role of the FBI. and, And I hope people would be satisfied that that is the case because you just don't want the FBI being able to do uh, whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. You know, there are guidelines that are set for what is FBI jurisdiction and what is not. Very interesting. Another complicated issue that listeners may not have thought of, you know, what if the FBI could do just whatever they wanted? Would we really want that? The answer is no. Yeah. Amazing. I think also um, another point I want to highlight is the idea that FBI agents do not hunt serial killers, you have said. Um, I think there's a little bit of confusion about that because of like media portrayals and things like that. Well, it's not that FBI agents don't hunt serial killers. It's that FBI profilers don't hunt serial killers. Uh-huh. So there's a little bit of a difference. But in most stories and books, you know, TV and, and movies, it's an FBI profiler from Quantico who's hunting the serial killers. Now, FBI agents can work with local law enforcement and have and do work with local law enforcement on serial murders. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the the things that we're known for, because you might have, uh, it, it is what enables serial killers who murder in multiple jurisdictions right. uh, to be caught, mm-hmm. is the fact that the FBI is involved. So it's not that the FBI, an FBI agent doesn't do it, it's that a profiler doesn't do it. That's a, So it's a little bit of a distinction. But FBI agents work with local and state and, and uh, agencies in order to uh, coordinate, you know, a murder that's similar in this state with a murder that's similar in in, in that state. And uh, have you watched the the? Um, of course, that's sexual assault and and rape. But the Netflix series, Unbelievable. I haven't. Should we? Oh yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. I'm writing oh. it down. Oh, absolutely. I just did a a short review um, with comments from a friend of mine, an FBI agent who also investigated sexual assaults after she retired. And it's a phenomenal film. It is if somebody wants to know how an investigation is done well and done well by two female detectives. (laughs) It's a great show to watch. Wonderful. 
but it shows it shows an investigation of sexual assault, a serial rapist. And that's why I brought it up. We were talking about serial uh, killers, but serial rapists, uh, if they want to sh- if they want to see how an investigation is conducted with multiple jurisdictions, multiple states at the local level with the assistance and participation of the FBI. Unbelievable on Netflix Wonderful. is the show to watch. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I do remember you sort of saying that the the profilers that we as consumers of true crime media may have seen um the profilers are not chasing a serial killer in the woods with a gun like that is correct right they're they're <laughs> consultants so their role is to work on what appears to be an unsolvable case and so police detectives and investigators from all over the country can request to consult with FBI profilers and provide them their cases, their interviews, and the profiler is going to be consultant. Uh, he or she is going to look through that file, going to ask questions, going to give suggestions of who may have done this. You know, who, what kind of things that the investigator needs to look for to help them solve what again appears to be an unsolvable case. Now they may go out to the location to speak with an investigator, but for the most part, their work is done over the telephone. They're sitting in their office in the behavioral um, analysis unit at Quantico trying to help figure out who's responsible for this case are to help investigators figure out how to question a suspect. The suspect is there. How, what, what kind of questions should I ask him? You know, what should I wear? What should I say? How should I act? And that, those profilers are providing a consultation as to the best way in order to move forward with that investigation, with that interview. Amazing. That's amazing. That is. Yeah, it doesn't belittle their or minimize their the work that they do. It's very important, but they are not chasing the serial killer down a dark alley or into a dark basement. And uh, you know that is a cliche and a myth that has been out there forever. There might be FBI agents working hand in hand with local police detectives and investigators doing that work. So the FBI does definitely work on serial killer investigations. But it's not the profilers, it's the agents. Yes, and that also goes back to something we talked about before, which is that people listening might not realize how many varied skill sets and careers come together to make up the FBI as a whole. It's not always someone going around with a gun, wearing a black suit, like, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Now, I... I want to make sure people understand that the profilers are agents. They're special agents who've worked in the field, who at some point, it's a very competitive job, you know, applied and were uh, given the appointment of becoming a profiler and working at behavioral science unit. But we have agents who are also, I mentioned this before, who are bomb techs, who worked as evidence uh, on their evidence response team, who are um you know, experts as technical agents, you know, the people who uh, who break into buildings and break into homes and install those legally um, wow. wire, wire taps. taps, yes, and, wow. and electronic surveillance. There are just so many fascinating jobs in the FBI that the agents can have in addition to being investigators. Uh, but there's also, so agents make up about 13,500 uh, of the FBI ranks, uh, there's 37, um, 37,000 employees wow. in the FBI. Wow. So agents aren't even, you know, 50% of the population. I mean, the rest of the people are, are, are professional support staff wow. that, you know, whether they're a computer a specialist or, you know, they're a linguist or, uh, you know, accounting technicians. And you know, there's so many other positions in the FBI. Uh, the FBI agent is the only one that has the law enforcement capabilities who, who carry a gun and all agents 
uh, are responsible for, you know, um, carrying, you know, firearms on a daily basis. But there's so many other positions that don't have an age requirement, you know, that, um, you know, people who are interested in joining the FBI can check out. That is awesome. I so appreciate that you joined us today. I mean, I think our listeners are going to be just blown away with how fascinating all of this is. Well, this is an important time for the FBI. You know, we've had uh, cyclical times where the American people are all behind us in times when you know they're not. And so it's very important for people to get the truth, to really learn who the FBI is and what the FBI does. And I am absolutely thrilled. I had an opportunity to come on the fall line to, to share this with them. So wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Jerry Williams for joining us today. Our next interview will be with Anthony Redgrave, whose work you've heard about on our show before, through his organization, the Trans Doe Task Force. As a team leader with the DNA Doe Project and through his association with Othram Forensics, Anthony and his team recently identified a doe who died over a hundred years ago, the oldest case to be solved via genealogy. We hope you'll join us then. We'd like to thank all the listeners who have taken time to support our sponsors, left us reviews, or supported the show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks go out to Angie Dodd. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and mastered by Maura Curry. Our research assistants are Haley Gray, Kim Fritz, and Jess Watford. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Our theme music is by RJR. <laughs>